after we uh, get into God's Word here, we'll have a closing song and then a break, enjoy some fellowship with one another over some coffee, and then if you're staying for Sunday school, day four, we'll be leading Connections back here in this room for the adults. So if I could just for a minute ask you to reflect on um, where you're at right now in your life in regards to how much control you feel like you have in your life. Or, or maybe how much control you want to have in your life. <clears throat> maybe you're, you're really vying for control right now. Maybe that's a, that's a constant theme in your life. Or maybe, maybe it's something you're not even realizing that you're doing. It's become your normal that at every turn, you're trying to control. And I'm not talking about just good life management. I'm talking about absolute control. And if you don't have a sense of control, you're getting really insecure and really afraid, really unsettled. And some, some end up finding themselves in the opposite place that, that they feel so out of control in their lives that they kind of throw up their hands about everything. Well, why even try? Everything's just a wreck anyhow, or I don't seem to have any influence, any power in my, over circumstances that are going on around me, so why even try? There's a famous prayer called the Serenity Prayer written by Reinhold Niebuhr. And it's often truncated to its original, uh, original lines, and it's used in a lot of settings, like a lot of 12-step programs. This is a very common prayer, at least the, the beginning portion of it. And I want to begin with it, it but I want to begin how it reads in full. And it goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. And wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time. Enjoying one moment at a time. Accepting hardships as the pathway to peace. Taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will. That I might be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. Some powerful thoughts there. If you have your Bibles, and, and we're just this is going to be the first text I'll read, but it's a beautiful prayer, so you can you can uh, read along with me. It's in the end of First Chronicles in the Old Testament. The end of First Chronicles. It's a prayer as as uh, supplies are being gathered uh, for the temple that Solomon will build. It's actually a prayer of his father David, who God did not allow to build the temple. And and as we continue to ask this question, what is God really like? 
considering together the attributes of God, it, it's, it's really, I, I was thinking this serenity prayer really speaks to our reflection this morning. But what we'll take a few minutes to reflect on is the fact that God is sovereign. That God is sovereign. And the concept of God's sovereignty has to do with this idea that, that He has complete authority and control over all things. And that should come along with it the acknowledgement that I don't. And this thought is often expressed as we see it here in First Chronicles and David's prayer. And, and then following that, I'll, I'll read uh, off a couple of uh, verses from the Psalms. It's often, it's often framed in this, uh, this terminology of God being king of his kingship, which is kind of hard for us in America, even these 200-some years later, because we rebelled as a nation against that. So there's almost this subtle, this, or not so subtle, uh, kind of almost independent rebellion that's built within us to say, a king. No, I'm independent. I rule myself. But the scripture over and over and over again talks about God being in control, God having an absolute rule, God being sovereign because he's king over all his creation. So 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 29, and we just want to read this, this prayer, verses 10 through 13. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power, and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. A few other verses, just a couple beginnings of some psalms. And, and as we go through, you can just jot some of these verses down. Psalm 93 starts, The Lord reigns. And again, that's that, that's that idea of the Lord's kingship. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. And is armed with... He, the Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The Lord is firmly, the world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. Psalm 97, 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. A couple chapters later, in Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. 
Let the earth shake. God is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. So as Christians, we like to say things, <laughs> and, and maybe ironically but fittingly, when they don't feel this way, or the opposite seems true, we say, God is in control. Or we encourage someone who, whose life seems to be spinning out of control, or their kids' lives to be spin, seem to be spinning out of control. Circumstances um, have been difficult, and we say, God is still on the throne. What does that mean? It means, at least in part, that God is working from a place of full autonomy, that, that God never answers to anyone but himself, and his rule is absolute. And that never changes. It hasn't ever changed, and it will never change. The supreme governing power and authority we can say is made possible, although that's probably a really bad terminology when it comes to God, but for lack of a better phrase, made possible by other attributes we've considered, uh, such as God's infinite uh, independence or his self-sufficiency, from his omniscience, his all-knowing, his, his omnipotence, his all-power, his, his omnipresence, the fact that he is all places at all times. I give you. I feel like I'd be failing you not to read a little Tozer through this series. Were there even one datum of knowledge, however small, unknown to God, his rule would break down at that point. To be Lord over all creation, he must possess all knowledge. And were God lacking one infinitesimal modicum of power... That lack would end his reign and undo his kingdom. That one stray atom of power would belong to someone else. And God would be a limited ruler and hence not sovereign. Furthermore, his sovereignty requires that he be absolutely free. Which means simply that he must be free to do whatever he wills. To do any, anywhere and at any time to carry out his eternal purpose in every single detail without interference. A.W. Pink says, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent, God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. I was talking to someone this week about how the reformers are so good at... <laughs> examining the attributes of God. The only limitations God could possibly have are limitations that he would impose on himself, limitations of his own character and his own will. And out of, out of his sovereign sovereignty, God's will and God's moral attributes flow. Things like him being good, him being just, him being loving and merciful... 
They're unquestionably complete because His will is perfect and the reach of His rule is without limit. Now, of course, in all this, there's an, what I'd call an unanswerable question. And I won't try and answer an unanswerable question. <laughs> Maybe we'll enter in just for a moment to get a little bit of traction, but there is this question that, that I think we just won't know until the other side of glory, and where we say, how does a God that has absolute rule and absolute dominion, a God that is perfectly holy, as we've looked at, and perfectly just, how does evil enter the scene? I don't know. I don't know. We may do no better than to say, certainly that God has not somehow ceased to be sovereign since evil has reared its ugly head. Nor should we say the blasphemy that God would somehow be responsible for creating evil. But rather there's this great mystery that within his sovereignty, God is allowing evil, we may say, to run its course. And he allows it to do so within certain parameters, a limited time and a limited space. For us, it feels like we're, for us, we're, we're fish in water. We see evil around us all the time. We, it, it's hard to, to, to kind of try and catch up with the news without kind of going over and over, ah, oh, how could man do that to man? How can mothers do that to their children? How could, how could strangers do that to other strangers? But yet God is allowing evil to run its course in a limited time and a limited place. Revelation 12 tells us that Satan, losing this heavenly rebellion, it talks about this, this, this rebellion that happened in heaven with a third of the angels fighting against this archangel Michael, that they lost that battle. And it says very specifically that Satan was cast down to the earth. And it says that he is filled with fury because he knows his time is what? Short. Limited time, limited space. Cast to the earth, he knows his time is short. He knows his time is short because he'll only be allowed to have a limited dominion for this limited time until the return of Jesus Christ. What we sang about at the end of It Is Well With My Soul, as he comes as judge over all the earth. Yet even in all this, and, and this is again kind of a marvel that, that just goes beyond us because God is God and we are not. Even in all this, God's rule is not ultimately thwarted. Somehow in the end, we will see that his perfect will was able to encompass even our imperfect choices. He's just that good. He's just that good that, I mean, I'm not that good. If I'm building a wall with somebody, and even if I'm really skilled and they're screwing stuff up, you know, it's going to be hard to make that a perfect wall. 
but God's that good that he can, make, he can take the imperfect and work it within the perfect. He's able to bring even the wrong to his ultimate good. We see pictures of this throughout Scripture. We see, we see in the Old Testament Joseph's, the, the evil intent of Joseph's brothers and how God turned that around to the good of the whole family and to the whole nation. We, we see how God used pagan nations over and over, nations like Egypt and nations like Assyria and nations like Babylon to, to discipline Israel, to correct them, to refine them, but never to utterly destroy them. Even using godless rulers and tyrants to bring about his perfect will, to bring history down its, his, its timeline to his greatest purposes. So we have to ask the question, when we look at Scripture and we see those things as true, do we think it's any less true today? Isn't the word of Isaiah still true in Isaiah 40? He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground that he blows on them and they wither and, and the whirlwind sweeps them away as chaff. And then our theme verse for this series, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. God is in no less control than he was when Isaiah penned those words. He is still completely sovereign. And here's the reality that the limited dominion of evil, limited time, limited space, is shorter now than it was then. If Satan knew his time was short thousands of years ago, he knows it's only getting shorter. That's because the return of Jesus Christ is near every day. Amen? And until then, God is still working, as Romans 8.28 says, all things to the good of those who love him, who have been called to his purpose. God is sovereign. Now, as humans, we, of course, are not sovereign. We're never completely free of dependence on, uh, of outside things. Resources, people. We never hold complete authority or control even over much of our own lives. In fact, we're in far less control than we like to imagine. There's things in life that happen that bring that reality home, aren't there? And if you say, no, I haven't experienced that, I don't want to be like, wait till the hammer falls, because I'm not a doom and gloom guy, but God will bring that, soberly, that reality soberly in your life, and it'll be good for you, that you're in far less control than you think you are. We don't control our own origins. We don't control when we're born, where we're born, what family we're born into, what race we're born into, what gender we are. 
We don't control our DNA. We don't control our natural talents. We can, we can work at them and refine them and hone them, but we're given them. We don't control our own limitations. Again, we can work against them. We can try and get better, but we're born a certain way. And we're in much less control of our everyday circumstances than maybe even we know. When you're a parent long enough, for those of you who have parented, you get that. (laughs) You're not nearly in as much control of your kids' lives than you once liked to think. When they're little, you can scoop them up, you know. (laughs) But even then, walking around the shopping center, (laughs) man, I'm the one with the kid that's not settling down, right? We're just nearly, not nearly in control like we like to be. Yet God has given each human a choice. It's what's often called a free will. And in essence, it goes like this. And this is kind of the Mickey Mouse version. In essence, it goes like this, that God in his sovereignty, always everything we got to kind of couch that way, frame that way, that God in his sovereignty, never less sovereign, never less in control, gave mankind the will to freely choose to submit to that rule or to attempt to break from it and be subject only to ourselves. This kind of, this sense of maybe what we could call self-sovereignty. But this freedom to break from God's rule, God made very clear, is rebellion against it. And you get that picture in the garden with with Adam and Eve, this beautiful garden. It wasn't a heavy-handed, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. All the trees in the garden are yours, but I give you one choice. There's a choice to freely rebel. Just one tree out of all these vast other trees, just one. But it came with a dire warning. If you rebel you will surely die. It's not what God wanted. It's not God's heart. The Bible says that God doesn't even delight in the death of the wicked. Too often it sounds like Christians seem to delight in the death of the wicked. God doesn't. There's one tree. If you rebel, if you choose this concept of self-sovereignty, you will surely die. The irony then is that to choose to break from freely submitting to God's rule doesn't ultimately bring freedom, but rather bondage and death. Jesus said that everyone who sins, which is everyone, (laughs) everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And all sin, as we talked about, separates us from God, who is the author of life, So that has to mean death, physical eventually and spiritual. Yet within this deadly bondage, we find ourselves kind of constantly pining for more control. There's something deep within maybe our our subconscious that tells us you're really not in control. 
So we just pine for it more and more. We become obsessed with self-sovereignty. We don't simply try and manage our lives. We try in, in vain to kind of find comfort in commanding our lives. But comfort doesn't come. Because every time there's a sense of a loss of control, there's only fear and anxiety. So we try harder. I'll control more. I'll try harder. I'll control more. We, we attempt to be, or at least appear to be, completely independent. I'm completely self-sufficient. No, you're not. Only God is. I can do it on my own. I don't need help. I dare not show weakness. We manage our own image. We put on masks. You can see this part of me, but not this part of me. Lest I appear weak. Lest I appear in need. Lest I appear, God forbid, out of control. We do our best to control our circumstances, what we own. We attempt to control other people. That usually comes in a couple of, a couple of ways. Either there's a passive, subtle manipulation. Some of you have gotten really good at that. Some of us have gotten really good at that. Babies of the family tend to be pretty good at that. I'll just subtly manipulate with my words. Or the other, the other extreme is you bully. And it, it doesn't come across necessarily as a, the big kid in the school slapping the little kid around. It's, again, it's, it's using your power, using your authority, using your words. I'm going to get my way one way or another. I'm going to control you. This happens even in the church. Manipulation, bullying. <laughs> Too often it happens through the manipulation of guilt. I'll keep shaming you. I'll keep making you feel guilty. And eventually, your behavior will be as I hope it would be. But this concept of self-sovereignty that we're better off vying for more and more control of our own lives is a lie. It's a terrible deception. For one, to choose to step away from submitting to God's sovereignty doesn't make God any less sovereign. It's simply our failure to recognize and yield to its reality on our own volition. God's still bringing all of his history to its desired end, and we'll still all have to make an account before him. Uh, Tozer uses a simple metaphor of a cruise ship taking a cross-Atlantic uh, voyage. And he says, and if you imagine this cruise ship, its, de its destination and its course is set. Nothing's going to change it. But the people aboard the ship during that voyage are kind of making their own choices. And doing their own thing, some for good, some for evil. But in the end, their choices never negate the course and never negate the final destination. Scripture teaches us that even as we plan our own way, 
And some of you are in the midst of great decisions and we think, oh, what is the will of God? This college or that college? Uh, this guy or that guy? Or, you know, what should I do? What, what career decision should I make? And should we this? And God's word says that even as we plan our own way, in the end, it's, it's God's purposes that prevail. Isaiah 46, a few verses out of Isaiah 46 This is interesting how it starts. It's starting at verse 8. It says, remember this, fix it in mind. In other words, like we might say as a parent, get it in your thick skull. Fix it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. This is God speaking. He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come, I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. And then he gives a couple simple examples. He says, from the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. A few verses out of Proverbs. Proverbs 16, verse 9. In his heart, a man plans his course. But the Lord determines his steps. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans of a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Proverbs 20, verse 24 A man's steps are are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his own way? What a question. (laughs) Not submitting to God and His sovereignty doesn't make Him any less sovereign. To choose to be free from God's rule doesn't stop God from ruling. It simply makes us rebels against the reality of His rule. Rebels against the reality of His sovereignty. And this rebellion leads us, as we said, not to freedom, but to bondage, to judgment, to death. And this is why Jesus came, to free us, to liberate us, to liberate us from that slavery, to liberate us from that bondage, to liberate us from that judgment. That's why he took the cross freely chosen, that he would take your judgment and my judgment, and there we would find freedom. James Boyce says, human autonomy led to the crucifixion of Christ, but Jesus chose it so that we could be free. So I can't control nearly as much as I'd like to believe. I can't make other people do what I want them to do, except in fleeting moments that I force what we may call unauthentic responses. How often we do that with our own children or with people at work. We force unauthentic responses out of manipulation or bullying. So what can I control? Here's the great paradox, folks, how this comes full circle. Do you know where you find true freedom? It's in yielding the deception of self-sovereignty 
to the reality of God's sovereignty. It's to, out of my own free will, return and submit to an acknowledgement of what is. It already is. God is in control. And I can come and submit my life to that God who is in control. It is what it already is. Does it strike you that in Romans 10.9, that it proclaims, if you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is in control. He is master. He has been given authority over all creation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that that is what is, it doesn't change it if you don't confess it. Jesus is not less Lord because you don't say it. But if you confess personally, like we're praying for Frank to confess, that Jesus is Lord and he is Lord of my life, and I freely submit myself to that rule and that lordship, not of a harsh God, but of a loving God, who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather wants us to live, to turn to him and live. And Romans 10.9 continues, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's the reflection, that's the evidence that he is Lord, that he is who he says he was and is. It says, you will be saved. It's to move from the isolation and death of self-sovereignty to the life of union with Christ. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. James Boyce again says, true freedom comes by crucifixion with Christ, that union with Christ... When individuals rebel against God, they don't achieve freedom. They fall into bondage because rebellion is sin, and sin is a tyrant. On the other hand, when men and women submit to God, they become truly free. They achieve the ability fully to become the special, unique beings that God created them to be. True peace, then, and true freedom is only found by a deliberate return to God's sovereignty in my life through Christ's lordship. And it's there I can stop frantically trying to control every aspect of my life. And I can rest in what God tells me in Psalm 4610, be still. Why can I be still? Why can I rest? Why can I let my mind rest and my heart and my anxiety rest? Be still and know that I am God. It's there that I can begin to, begin to trust and petition God as Jesus encourages us to pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may that start with us. It's there that we can begin to move away from anxiety as we're encouraged in Philippians 4 that in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving we would present our requests to God 
And it says the peace of God, that's the place as we're trusting in God's sovereignty. I've laid my request before you. I'm trusting that you're in control. That's where the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's returning to trusting in God that he's totally in control, that even in my difficult circumstances, as Tozer puts it, God will yet have his way in the whirlwind and the storm. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us. Now, he, he's, talking to people, he's talking to people that are in situations that you wouldn't say their troubles are light and momentary, Okay? But perspective, in perspective, our light and momentary troubles in the perspective of eternity, in the perspective that evil has a limited dominion, a limited time, a limited space, that God is sovereign over all creation and he will make things right. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. R.T. France says, it is God's purpose which will finally be established and his glory which will fill the earth. It is for the person of God to take his stand on his assurance of the sovereignty of the holy God and to know that the sufferings of the present are not the final word. It is not by questioning the wisdom of God, but by trust in his sovereignty and his justice that the righteous shall live. It's in trusting that God is in control that I can stop trying to rescue the whole world. That I can stop. Now, this may seem counter <laughs> to what you may read sometimes or counter to what you may hear even in church, that I can stop even trying to rescue everyone in my life. That I can even stop trying to rescue my own children. But that I can just be faithful. I love, I love in 2 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul just talks about just being faithful to the field that God assigned you. Yours is not the whole world. Yours is not every person in the world. Yours is just to be faithful. As Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? Just be faithful in the places God has put you. Faithful in the relationships God has put you in. Seek justice for the oppressed. Love mercy. As you have loved that God has shown mercy in your life, walk humbly with the sovereign God that's in control of all things and you're not. It's there I find freedom in not understanding every aspect of my life, not understanding every detail of my life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Just be faithful. And he will direct your paths. Even when I share my faith, even in evangelism, people aren't mine to save. They're not yours to save. It's my job to be faithful. It's my job to have compassion. It's my job to seek justice and love mercy and walk humbly with my God and to, to love others and, as I love myself, to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I enter in and I share my faith. What I'm trusting is that God is already at work, that God is the one that can save. 
Let's be faithful. Pray with me if you will. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as a pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may reasonably, be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault, And what a great phrase we have next. And with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.